Modern Shift presents Rights of the Renouncer, an audiobook serial podcast by Benjamin Camphouse. Chapter 5, Part 1 I had covered some distance. The texture of the landscape had changed from sharp to pillowed, sections here and there worn down into soil. Parent material was old enough for the green worms I spotted from time to time to have broken it down into finer grains. A rust-colored, spongy moss covered several freestanding rocks that poked out from the dark basalt. Stopping a moment to look closer, I could see the rock had a different color and texture, probably dragged here from elsewhere by the repeated lava flows that had laid down the majority of the land cover. Then my eyes were drawn to the first signs of the cenotaph. It hung like a thread from the clouds. It reminded me of schematics I had seen for space elevators and similar proposed, though never realized, structures in the archives. I have used the word cigarette in describing it and other monuments in the dream world before. I mean to convey the mythical effort that appeared to be behind its construction, much like in the ancient tale, the cosmological justification, if you will, of the Tower of Babel. Here the architects had not had to contend with any gods or had bested them, Perhaps it was only a single architect, and no trickery of the gods could divide its purpose and set it against itself. Either way, it or they had won their victory and had constructed a building that reached into the heavens. Or perhaps the architects were the same as for the dream world itself, having projected the form of this tower with the same effortlessness with which we populate our own virtual realities. Not needing to mine, transport, or reshape any of the stone, that dark yet shimmering obsidian that comprised its surface. It exposed nothing of its construction, no seams, no remnant of stone scraping stone, no mason mark. Even if it had simply been woven into the fabric of the dream world from its beginning, I felt it had been a weighty effort. I continued to advance as I contemplated it. The soil and the worms I had noted as the soil source became more common, the pillow lava giving way to patches of rock made up of the same material as the stones I had seen standing upright earlier. Here and there were spires of that same rock, suggesting that the lava had flowed around them when carrying the boulders away. The rock spires appeared more frequently in my left field of view than my right. Part of me noted this detail, still tracking my orientation, though the increasing prominence of the cenotaph made other landforms less necessary for navigation. It was taking up more and more of my vision, and I knew then it would be as when I dreamed in this region before the width of its space a few hundred times that of my own body. And then I was close enough to feel the compulsion of the seeming, an initially subtle manipulation and perception giving way to the direct transfer of emotional state. As easily as we make words arise in the minds of other human beings by barking out a landscape of hissing and popping sounds at one another, so the cenotaph plays on the minds of its observers. The palette of emotion with which we decode is made up of the colors of our own experience. The young might wander to it with the quiet respect of a tourist, all mirth having departed, but not having any suitable memory with which to process what they witness. Others, especially the older, would struggle immediately upon crossing the threshold I now passed, weeping and sobbing for hours before finding themselves awake on the surface. The reference I possessed for the grief the cenotaph projected was my own loss of Owen in my teens, that sink deep in the pit of the stomach, the want and need to sit down, to receive any news of progress. 
To consider that hopelessness without the additional neural stress of keeping my postural muscles engaged enough to prevent falling over. I was grateful then not to have eaten recently, either in the dreaming or waking world, as I would have sought freedom from my stomach contents, not wasting any of the flow of my blood for digestion or standing, dedicating everything to my grief. Dreaming from the surface of Viscania Prime, the experience began to overwhelm me. But I had known, with some pretense of detached objectivity, that this would happen as I came near the cenotaph. I had held the possibility in mind long enough for my unconscious to prepare for it. There was no escaping or blacking out the reliving of grief that the cenotaph forced on me. It was a raw, unyielding pain. I was filled up with it. But I also knew my purpose, and I channeled that pain to my ends. The grief was appropriate. It laid a foundation for my undertaking. I was there now on its behalf, to find Owen, to bring him back if I could, or at least to get closure, to determine his fate and that of the other untethered. Whatever grief the makers of the cenotaph had themselves borne, whatever let them imbue this structure with it so expertly, in the same way it compelled them to construct an obsidian tower in the dream world to make others feel their sorrow, it now compelled me to craft something in turn, transmuting that pain into an equal weight of determination. As stepping into the cenotaph sphere was experiencing the event of loss again, the journey to stand before it was all that time of coping, of coming to understanding, decades of momentary regrets and sadness, and scattered throughout acceptance. All those mornings on waking, beginning the day as if nothing had happened, then being reminded by some smell, some song or sound, an object dropped just so, that this person, my friend, was no longer with me. I walked that lifetime of sorrow, treading through soil and basalt, all those moments of grief touching me, then becoming the strength that took this step forward, then this step, then the next. At last I had come to my destination, that black, glossy stone staring back into me as I stared into it. I took on the ancient posture then, legs crossed, feet resting on the earth, and below each knee, spine tending straight, palms up and just over my lap, the forefingers of one hand resting on the forefingers of the other. My thumbs came near without touching, as if keeping a single grain of rice suspended between but not supplying sufficient force to do more than hold it in place. I sat there in meditation, searching for anything that might remain of my friend. Open monitoring is one of the oldest meditation techniques. The meditator opens themselves to all experience and sensation, cultivating an impassive perception, releasing the mind from its task of categorization and judgment. A wise teacher on earth put it this way, welcome your thoughts as if greeting them on the street, but do not invite them in for tea. When taking on this practice, we avoid mindlessly building these fragments of perception into stories. Now, at the foot of the cenotaph, my task differed in two important respects. First, I could not lose the story of myself and its arc in the present, could not abandon myself in this place. 
to hold on to myself. I had to trust in that other unseen me, the work of my unconscious processes. I had to have faith in the remainder of myself. My conscious thoughts would be directed toward the task of rummaging through mind states, looking for any trace of Owen. And second, if I could find him, I would have to follow the path of his own self-story. My mind would need to wonder, not as it tended to naturally, but to learn to wonder as Owen's mind had, to be immersed in the reflexive purpose and judgment that had made up Owen's sense of being. As I began meditating there, it was like stepping into an ocean with waves cast every which way, rebelling against the currents, unable to cooperate for a common goal. Each of the waves hit me as an auditory hallucination does the schizophrenic, a separate voice that pulled and compelled, encouraged and judged. I felt as though I could be ripped apart in that immediate influx of mind states. No, I would not let this emergent narrative overwhelm me. This was not a trustworthy story I was building. Only a few hundred human minds had come to call Vascania Prime home. Not all of them would have come here when dreaming. Of those that might have, I was sure I had known many of their names at some point in my life. If I had stayed on the surface, I would still, even those who came before, those who had died before I was born, or those born after me. If traces of Owen were here, I would find them. This was not like looking for drops of rain in the sea, but like flipping through the pages of a book. I took a breath, awareness pouring over me. Laughter moved the air in a small room, the other children's, boys and girls. The soft glow of a blue light from a monitor on a respirator, just to my left. Coming to, after I'd been pulled below ground in the dream world, my mouth filled with dirt, now fully awake, the relief at being able to breathe again, feeling my throat still shaking, knowing I must have called out. The next sharp intake of breath, and then Nadia was there next to me. The warmth and softness of her skin, the strength in that grip hugging me, and I found myself crying as she asked what was wrong. A click hiss, click hiss. The airlock was cycling. The shift in the smell of the air on my nose as my own helmet clicked as well, the sharp pressure of my finger pressing the release as the helmet came off. The air outside had a partially oxidized, half-dead smell to it, at least as it came in through the filtration system. Now the air in our curated atmosphere instead, directly in my nostrils, moving the tiny hairs there, its warmth and humidity. It felt alive. Exhale. My own breath again, shifting gears, me, Victor's breath. I could feel the weight of my own knees over my feet, the outer ridge of each foot against the rigid surface of my boots, those boots transferring pressure, the ground of the dream world pushing back against my weight. I inhaled, the breath filling my lungs, back, then fingers, a few clammy with sweat, his hand clasped in mine. The off-white walls and their sterility, that stark medical privacy we'd been granted in the new extension of the shelter, space for adult human beings to enjoy what we will. I could feel the brush of his lips on the nape of my neck, a shiver working through me. No, not this time. I had had it. I clenched my hand into a fist and punched Shin right in that stupid smirk on his face. The bastard had been asking for it for weeks. Red lights and alarms, the machines would come force a separation now, I was sure of it. It was worth, the terrain on this part of the surface was uneven, each bump jostling my body, 
I was skating the edge between excitement and motion sickness. The butterflies in my stomach would turn against me any time now. Ready to slow down, I forced the words out, giggling at the shakiness of my own voice from being bounced about. Acknowledged, the readout displayed. The act of reading just that one word giving my stomach a bit of a lurch as the vehicle began to slow. My helmet down, I could feel the warmth of the sunlight through the window in the motor pod, ranging far out from the dim side of my home into the other, hotter edge of the habitable band. The air of that breath was gone now, new air coming in. I heard all over. I could feel my head sagging to the left, but hadn't the will to fight it. The mass in my cheek and chin on that side pulled me down. I felt there was something in my mouth I'd forgotten to finish chewing, then swallow knew it was the other side of the mass, encroaching. Some part of me found the strength to keep my head from sinking all the way to the ground. With it partially upright, I looked back at Ari, then Sunil behind her, then continued reading. I didn't want them to know how much it hurt me, didn't want them to bear any more weight or fear of concern. They were still just children, the machine's latest work, having learned from their mistakes with me and the others, most of whom we had already lost. They might be free of this cancer. Selfishly, a part of me wanted to trade places, to sit as the child looking at the lost adult, to feel some hope for a future that I might be part of. Why had I been born so early? Why was I one of the failures? Could I not? That steady hum. I wanted it to end. It would not leave me alone. Stop, stop, I shouted, began kicking, but I was restrained. I felt the bite of cold hit my veins, knew it would be chemical sedation. I wanted to be anesthetized, not sedated, didn't want the dreams to take the same hold of me. Please, something inside me whimpered, not the dreams. I breathed in again, the air filling my lungs, out again. Each breath, pieces of the lives of those who had come to the cenotaph before I sat there that day. I felt all the passing minds that had smeared themselves against it. Pieces of memory lingering like musk from a scent gland. All the anguish, the joy, the hope. But more often than not, this sound, this particular comfort, this warmth or coldness or this pain. Each fragment called out to me. I have no strong conscious will. I was eager to follow, to plot and correct injustices, to find and plan for more pleasures, to sit and enjoy this moment, to allow it to linger for just a few minutes more. Though I was tugged by each person, each sensation, I was on a track laid by my deeply conditioned purpose, and I had no means to steer away from it. I had a single option open to me, a single destination I would accept. Find Owen. Sitting there, breathing in and out moments and lifetimes all at once, the weight of the experience of so many lives lived in the Viscania system, on the surface of its first world and ours, flowing through me. I found him. There he was, like a missing piece that fit into my own memories. The smell of plastic off-gassing, a trace of thin burnt charcoal in the air. Those smells we had both experienced as children in the hospital. He had noted something metallic, some rusty scent from the filtered air and the vac suits that I had missed. The combination of Viscania Prime soil chemistry and its interaction with the filters that kept the air sterile and the oxygen balance correct. Songs, lullabies, the ones we had begun to compose using software suited to that purpose. Those songs were the other language, 
that deeper animal tongue in which we could immerse ourselves. More sounds, metal being placed on metal from beyond our shelter, the whir of the wheels on the motor pods during our excursions. Those songs and sounds merged together into a steady beat, and I remembered my hand holding his in the waking world, feeling his pulse. These were traces of Owen's deepest memories, an anchor to him at last. They were familiar to me, mirrored my own memories, but differed also as a room differs when viewed in lighting of another tent. Then a memory of my own face as a child, and the touch of my own hand, the attribution. Reliance, loyalty, the stabilizing sense of having me in his periphery, being set at ease, that freedom, that lightening of a weight, the knowing that someone you trust is close at hand. My own emotional response to that almost threw me off course. My mixture of pride and sorrow, having been absent so long but being back here now, these feelings and thoughts were my reaction, not his. What I needed to do, the work before me, was to follow his thoughts, his own impressions of them, and join them together, to hold them in mind and let them lead the way, with no regard to myself and what those thoughts might suggest to me, where they might take me instead. Gathering them into myself as I went, I knew that this would be beyond what I could consciously do, but I trusted that my unconscious would see to it, to adhere to a self as a fixed point, It was what it had been conditioned to do. I had just changed the target for myself to him. And so I set out from the cenotaph. I traveled for what must have been hours, though these hours stretch out into days in my recollection. I cannot say I had any sense of time passing then. I had no room to attend to anything beyond the work of tracing Owen from this residue of memory. To lose focus would have been to drown myself in the sea of Owen's thoughts and memories, to be swept away by their sheer intensity, experiencing all the moments of a life in a few flashes, to overlay all the light that had been cast over a lifetime into my eyes at once, the brightness of a thousand suns burning out my vision. I rendered all that to my unconscious instead, following this moment, this memory, a touch of skin on skin, small hairs brushing against each other, the bland sweetness of the formula drink we had all had so often, the nutrient-rich sludge, people's names, plans for the future, the experience of those pieces cast in consciousness and language was less intense, but also there. Finally, by a great shore, I arrived at some confluence of Owen. Whatever had taken him apart, I had crossed back into its highest density. This was the source of the scatter, most likely. I could follow the continuities of that sense of him, assembling as I went, being able to infer from the layout and direction where the vein would pick up again when it had been crossed by other minds, leaving their own residue over it or unintentionally separating this fragment here, this strand there. Now my work changed. As I began circulating the pieces of Owen's mind through my awareness, the task before me was to assemble those fragments back into a self. I changed from prospector to carpenter and craftsman, tracing the grain of the wood, knowing its base material, its suppleness or suitability for weight-bearing, its tolerance for wear. But I had fewer possibilities to track. Bound by the same constraints as a surgeon, my goal was only the particular configuration that would make my patient whole again. Any other artistry would not do. 
The self, or at least my reckoning of it, is not the whole of our memories, but an evolving connectedness of interests and intentions. It changes, but has a certain degree of continuity. You could also think of each of us as composed of a series of successor selves, each giving rise to the next through the acts of thinking or momentary dispersals and assemblies and falling asleep and waking. What I needed was some critical mass of Owenness. The memories I had tracked in mind were not Owen, but bore an aspect of him. To return a self, that occupant which was missing from his body, that could operate it purposefully again. I would need to distill this essence, this common color, to Owen's memories and thoughts, and craft that into the appropriate form. There it could interface back to reality, and be cast back into a self-sustaining signal and connectivity in the networks of neurons in his brain. There, where I had gathered what I could find of him, I began the work of dissecting our shared memories. Since Owen and I had been his brothers, we had seen so many scenes play out from a similar perspective. This was why I had started with him, not just motivation from our closeness and my youth, though I will admit this might have biased me. For my first attempt at a rescue, I wanted the overlap in memory to make the task of separating the rememberer from the remembered easier. With each of Owen's gathered memories that I shared, I could start by subtracting what I also remembered, finding Owen, the rememberer, and the part that remained, a Rosetta Stone of memories to translate from my way of being to his. For this meditation, I did not assume the same posture I had at the Cenotaph. I walked deliberately in a small circle on the shore, a black sand beach. My feet pressed the sand down millimeter by millimeter, I cannot say why, but this walking has always freed my concentration, enabling me to visualize things with more clarity, the outside world vanishing in that regular motion. I closed my eyes, now accustomed to the path I was wearing in the sand. In my mind's eye, I could see two great palettes made up of tiny images, swaths through lifetimes, that of my own youth and that of Owen's laid out all around me, as if I were walking inside a great curved screen. This would be my workspace for rebuilding him. The Rights of the Renouncer novella is out in Kindle and paperback formats now. The album, the Scania Prime, and the EP, Rights of the Renouncer, are available on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream music. Thanks for listening.